Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. An update on the continuing resolution and whether we can dodge a government shutdown later this year and how talk of impeaching President Biden could make making a deal and more aid for Ukraine more complicated. Two months to the day after his forces marched on Moscow, the plane carrying Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and his top lieutenants crashed shortly after taking off from Moscow in what U.S. officials and others have said was an assassination by Vladimir Putin. What does the Russian leader's crackdown on military officers and his most successful troops mean for the war in Ukraine? Meanwhile, in an extraordinary rift, Washington is openly criticizing Kiev for not better focusing its counteroffensive, squandering its resources by spreading them too thinly, but will train Ukrainians to fly the F-16 fighter. The BRICS group, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, convened with Vladimir Putin joining remotely and making the case for a bigger block. China's economy continues to descend from bad to worse as nations across the region increasingly reject Beijing like Fiji, and Washington continues to bring nations together, and the Philippines have become a pivotal nation in that regional transformation. Joining us today, as they do every week to review the week in Washington and around the world, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, fresh back from his trip to uh, the uh, region. Uh, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, who's joining us very, very early uh, from uh, his uh, vacation in uh, California, uh, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his very many uh, affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the program. And a quick programming note, uh, this will be the last uh, Washington roundtable uh, for about two weeks. We are taking a down week uh, next week. Uh, the business roundtable, however, will happen on Sunday. Uh, that will be posted. Then we take a week off. And then the business roundtable starts us off uh, on Labor Day when we resume our coverage. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Uh, you're pinch hitting because there's an enormous amount of news. Uh, and I want to get everybody's take on the Republican uh, the first Republican presidential uh, debate uh, in which uh, security did factor in, in some very crisp and uh, sharp exchanges uh, among the eight uh, candidates uh, on the stage. But but uh, start us off uh, with an update. Right. Last week, we discussed uh, the agreement between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to strike some form of deal by the end of September. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last. Ideally, it lasts through the end of the year and averts a shutdown. But we don't know that that will happen. And then actually a deal might be uh, a bit uh, shorter. And then GOP uh, leaders uh, are talking about impeaching uh, President Biden, a move that's likely to complicate everything. Uh, and then we've got the Ukraine supplemental that's, you know, caught. there's a lot of things that get caught up in all of this. Walk us through where we are uh, and what's the latest, even though uh, Congress is out of session for another couple of weeks, about where we are and how this potentially plays out putting hopes aside and just looking at the facts. Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, even though Congress has been out, there is really a lot uh, to unpack this week. And, and you're right. I mean, McCarthy and Schumer, they do have an agreement in the sense that they agree they both need a CR in September. Uh, but that's really as far as the agreement goes. I know that McCarthy uh, wants a CR that would take us somewhere uh, to the beginning of December because he doesn't want to be pushed up against uh, the uh, Christmas holidays. And there would be a lot of pressure to do an omnibus at that point, which would break his deal uh, with the Freedom Caucus. Um, however, um, you know, Sh Schumer, you know, he agrees with McCarthy when he needs CR. He's already laying the groundwork to blame House Republicans that uh, if there isn't one and there is a shutdown, this is all their fault. And uh, McCarthy really has his hands full, not just with Freedom Caucus folks, but even with some of his moderates. Uh, earlier this week, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, for example, who's a moderate member on the Appropriations Committee from Texas, uh, came out saying America demands a secure border. I am a no on any continuing resolution that only kicks the can down the road. 
Uh, Ronnie Jackson, uh, who's on the Armed Services Committee, came out this week saying that he will oppose any continuing resolution that doesn't smash Biden's DOJ into a million pieces. Uh, and then you know, using the president's verbiage, calling the DOJ the enemy of the American people. Uh, now, we talked about two weeks ago about a letter that um, about 12 members of the Texas delegation sent out with their demands uh, for their support for a CR, many of which are never going to happen, including the resignation of Secretary Mayorkas. But now, uh, earlier this week, uh, the Freedom Caucus put out what they call their official position on the possible continuing resolution. And it's entitled No Security, No Funding. And they have a list of demands here as well, some from the Texas letter, but some new ones and some old ones. So uh, first they start saying that they're committed to restoring uh, the true FY22 top line spending levels. So they're not gonna support a CR at FY23 levels. It's gotta be a 22. Uh, they refuse to support, uh, they say any measure that continues Democrats bloated COVID spending era uh, spending and simultaneously fails to force the Biden administration to follow the law and fill its most basic uh, responsibilities and why they will not support a clean CR. Uh, then they go on to say that they'll oppose any spending measure that fails to include the House Pass Secure the Border Act of 2023. Uh, we saw that in the Texas letter. But now they're also saying that they uh, will not support a CR that fails to address the unprecedented weaponization of the DOJ and the FBI. And uh, they, will, they will not support a CR that uh, fails to end the left's cancerous woke policies in the Pentagon, undermining our military's core warfighting position. And for good measure, at the end of their statement, they say, oh, lastly, we'll oppose any blank check uh, for Ukraine and any supplemental appropriations bill. We want to uh, also impeach uh, the uh, sitting president. Um, well, that's, that, that's on, coming on in a second. Yeah, that right. is true, right? Because now McCarthy is really faced with you know this conundrum. Is he going to... Uh, uh, <clears throat> You know, get, give into their demands, which would force a shutdown, or is he going to get uh, Democratic votes uh, to keep the government open? Uh, I think it's more the, the former, but you're right. Uh, there has been talk of ways to appease these folks, which would be uh, to proceed uh, with an impeachment inquiry against the president. And, and McCarthy is inching closer and closer to that by the day. Uh, he even said earlier this week, uh, if the administration continues to hold certain documents that they are seeking as part of their investigation, the hearings that they're holding, that we will move forward with an impeachment inquiry when we come back into session. Uh, at the same time, I'm getting texts uh, over here in California on vacation from several Republican members that are concerned that McCarthy, as part of this deal, will throw in uh, unimpeaching uh, the uh, President Trump uh, and that McCarthy has come out uh, in favor of that as well. Uh, I don't think that that's going to be enough uh, to secure uh, support from the Freedom Caucus. I think it's, it's never enough for these guys. And they're proving, again, their disloyalty. Remember, part of the deal for McCarthy to become um, a speaker <clears throat> was that uh, you know they, they can't interfere in certain primaries. Uh, but that doesn't preclude the Freedom Caucus from in interfering in primaries. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. Uh, they are, uh, one, trying to recruit a candidate to challenge uh, Tony Gonzalez, who I mentioned earlier in Texas. Scott Perry, who's the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, met with one of his uh, possible opponents uh, earlier this year. And now it looks like Scott Perry, who chairs the Freedom Caucus, is recruiting uh, somebody to run against uh, Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania. And that's a seat that's a, you know, a, a purple seat that, you know, if it's not a moderate Republican candidate, that's a seat that's a loss for the Republicans, but they don't seem to care. And the guy that they're recruiting uh, apparently had his house raided by the FBI uh, over a violent encounter he had with a Planned Parenthood escort. And the guy admittedly said that he has struggled with exposure to pornography and sexual sin and the masturbation and stuff that was a result of all this. I mean, this, this is crazy town, that the people that they're, that they're supporting. So I, I think that you know, McCarthy's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I personally feel that we're going to have a shutdown uh, at the end of September. It's funny how everybody is hopeful that won't happen. And then there's uh, the uh, un unfortunate reality. I mean, I think, and we'll get to this in a minute, the, the precedent here, the former president unfortunately broke the law. If any of us had done this, we would be in trouble. The fact that charges are being brought uh, against him, you know, is the legal process working? Um, and to try to, to use all of the mechanisms, whether you're the House Judicial Chairman, right, Jim Jordan is, is working, Judiciary uh, Chairman, to uh, investigate all the people who are investigating the former president is, um, is, is very troubling and, again, continues uh, in this environment because I spoke to um, one um, uh, uh, senior senator who, you know, was, was um, 
looking at all of this and saying that, you know, on the Senate side, everything really on the appropriation side is is really ready to go. The issue is whether or not any of this stuff uh, moves ahead. Um, let's talk Oops. a little bit. No, go ahead. I was going to say, well, that's a great transition into where we are with the Ukraine supplemental, right? I mean, because I think that, um, you know, the Senate continues to behave like grownups on that, but uh, we continue to have more and more challenges on, on the House side. Uh, and the administration would like to see that supplemental as part of, of a CR. Uh, we've seen, you know, I mentioned just now the Freedom Caucus came out against, but there was one member of the Freedom Caucus that's been supportive of Ukraine, and that's Congressman Andy Harris. Um, you know, his mother uh, was Ukrainian and fled, you know, Eastern Europe after World War II, and he is the co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus. Uh, but earlier this week, you know, he came out basically saying, um, you know, the springtime offensive, uh, you know, is, is, is failed. And he's not sure that this conflict is winnable. And he's starting to hedge uh, against additional funding. But he's also made it clear, and we've talked about this previously, that uh, he's against any non-military aid you know, to, to, uh, for Ukraine. It's the humanitarian part of this package. And if that's included, he will oppose that. But then you have folks like Congressman Don Bacon on the House Armed Services Committee who came out saying that he will only support more aid to Ukraine if the administration commits to sending uh, weapon systems like ATACMS. Uh, over to, uh, right. to to Ukraine. So I think you know, Adam Smith, who uh, I think is always very intellectually honest, uh, came out pretty strong earlier this week, you know, really criticizing what both of them are saying. He said, look, if you cut off Ukraine aid, you know, you're leaving it at the mercy of the Russians. And if you don't think that the Biden administration is doing enough, then support the supplemental and push them to do more. And if you think it's time to negotiate peace, support the supplemental and put Ukraine in the best position uh, to negotiate. And I think he's exactly correct. Now, we see McConnell continue to be the champion of this over on the Senate side. He's saying that this is really the most important thing going on in world affairs right now. Uh, it's a stark contrast to his Republican colleagues in the House. And then we had a strong bipartisan group over in Ukraine uh, earlier this week, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's a Democrat on armed services, and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, over there. And, you know, you know, things are turned on their head when Elizabeth Warren is the champion of, you know, freedom and democracy and, and supporting military aid overseas. Well, I, I wouldn't debate on freedom of uh, freedom and democracy. I think she's big on freedom and democracy. But uh, the military aid part of it. Yes, I would. I would. Uh, I would. Uh, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Let me um, uh, dove uh, b before uh, we uh, uh, move uh, on, uh, because I do want to get everybody's sense and kind of going around the horn on the debate, but I wanted to let you weigh in on this, uh, from a financial, uh, standpoint as a, uh, as a scarred former, uh, and yet still remarkably intellectually healthy former controller. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I'm in agreement, uh, basically with Michael. I, I think the odds of a shutdown are far greater than the odds of a CR. Uh, for all the reasons that Michael said. But there's another thing going on here that I think people haven't caught up to yet. And that is that the extremes are actually feeding off each other and that this whole idea of uh, holding things up with a small group of people and demanding uh, certain outcomes isn't all that different from what AOC has been doing at her end um, and and the, the the squad has been doing, which essentially has said this very much the same thing. And so some of the tactics that we saw the squad trying to pull off against Pelosi, uh, the Freedom Caucus is now pull, pulling off against, frankly, a much weaker speaker uh, in McCarthy. And there's another aspect of, of this sort of uh, feeding off each other thing, which is this. The, the leaks basically are feeding those uh, that Michael described, who are opposed to uh, additional aid for Ukraine, because they're going to turn around and say, why should we give these people more money to and, and more weapons and so on? They can't pull off their counteroffensive. And my deep concern is that the leaks aren't just, as many people have said, to force Ukraine to the negotiating table. The leaks are there because they don't want to give Ukraine any more money and they're giving the extremes, the Freedom Caucus and others, the best excuses they have because they can say, why should we give them more money? Look what the administration itself is saying. And even though there have been those denials and those denials may be true coming out of the White House, there are just too many people who are leaking. And my experience and I think all of the people who are uh, on this uh, podcast will agree with me. Leaks don't come from junior people. Leaks come from senior people. 
Um, mm, it depends. As somebody who's uh, been on the receiving end of this, it depends. But yes, uh, in general, uh, there's a decision in, in order. And in this case, it was obvious that it was senior people uh, who were uh, talking to the New York Times. I want to get to that in a second and get Jim to weigh in on it. Uh, but uh, I want to briefly uh, go to the whole Tuberville matter again. Um, you know, uh, members are putting pressure, including from uh, Tuberville's own caucus and own uh, pol uh, conservative political stripe. Uh, to ease up uh, on this, but it doesn't seem like there's any evidence. Where are we uh, on on that? Because again, I mean, uh, you know, a senior lawmaker that I did talk to um, made it clear that this is, you know, not just toxic in the immediate sense in that people can't take jobs, but also, you know, the the up and comers, you know, the folks who are the colonels and are making brigadier, the guys who are making, you know, are going from one star to two star the whole atmosphere you're raised in from your service academy or ROTC days is to compete with within your group. Uh, and effectively, you know, it, all of a sudden it's like you're somebody senior who's kind of stalling out as other people, you know, are kind of catching up to you at some point that also has an impact on the best and the brightest wanting to stay in uniform and, and, and move forward just real quick uh, because I do want to get everybody's take on uh, the, um, the debate. G give me uh, give me your sense, Michael, on where we are on Tuberville. Uh, so we're really uh, nowhere. Uh, it's it's incredible because you're right. Uh, there are um, there are people uh, you know behind closed doors you know pressuring him from the Senate side, but also uh, my understanding is folks on the House side as well. Um, uh, not just at the staff level, at the member. That's level. my understanding as well. That the House leaders have become involved in this to, yes, to pressure him. Yes. As well. Uh, and now we're approaching, you know, more than 300 officers and their families that are affected by this. And it's, you know, uh, becoming a retention issue. Uh, you know, I think Ruben Gallego, who's running for the Senate in, in, um, in Arizona, came out earlier this week. You know, as he's saying that this is a national security problem because military families are thinking about speaking twice about continuing to serve. And we see several military families coming forward saying, you know, this may not be worth it to us anymore. And now Tupperville has doubled down in a very odd way. Uh, he's now singling out a lot of these. Uh, officers that are up for promotion uh, and re rehashing uh, statements that they made in the past that he considers woke. So things that they said about DEI, uh, things they've said positive about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, statements they've made about systematic racism. So now that's his new excuse for continuing to hold up these people. So if anything, I think the situation's got worse, not better. Um, uh, quick word uh, from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems is sponsoring our upcoming coverage of the Air Force Association's Aerospace Cyber Conference and uh, trade show. Uh, I want to uh, go uh, around the horn and Dove, uh, get your uh, sense as well as uh, Jim and Patrick on the Republican uh, debate. Uh, you guys have seen a couple of these over your uh, decades uh, long uh, careers. Uh, Donald Trump skipped the event for a range of reasons, including his stunning lead and so, so ne no reason to do that. And also not expose himself to trouble when he's facing four uh, indictments, including federal ones. Uh, Nikki Haley emerged uh, as a balanced leader in the minds uh, of uh, many, um, clearly looking uh, to the future uh, with a message that was clearly aimed at appealing to independence. But there were also some controversial positions that were taken, including by um, uh, uh, Vivek uh, uh, Rama uh, Swamy, uh, who was uh, controversial uh, in his both uh, Russia, Ukraine, and, and China and Taiwan uh, positions. Dove, uh, start us off, and then uh, Jim, want to get your sense, and then and then uh, Patrick, yours, uh, and Michael, you can uh, bring it home. Go ahead, Dove. Well, first of all, Ramaswamy wanted to come across, and he did, as a Trump mini-me, um, saying all kinds of outrageous things, which got him much more of the uh, uh, attention than anybody else. And even when they had split screens, he seemed to be on the split screen more than anybody. Um, he's a young guy. Uh, he's actually eligible to be president. You have to be 35 to be president. He's 37. He's going to be 38. Uh, and he was simply, I think, auditioning for the one thing he says he doesn't want to be, which is vice president. Uh, but clearly, um, if you're Donald Trump and you're watching this guy, you're going to say, fabulous. He's the guy I want. And from Ramaswamy's perspective, if something happens to Trump, He's president. So I think Ramaswamy was uh, successful in putting himself across as 
um, the new Trump, the new young Trump. Yeah, Haley did very well. Um, I don't think she get, she improved her chances of being vice president or even being in a Trump cabinet, but she did do well. Unfortunately, her percentages aren't very high. Uh, rest of them, uh, you know, they, they didn't go for very much or count for very much. But one other thing, and I've been talking to several people up here in New Hampshire about it, uh, the audience, I'm not sure you should have an audience because those folks, you know, they're booing. I mean, whatever you think of Chris Christie, you don't boo the guy. And he tried to face them down because he's a New Jersey type and that's what they do. Uh, but why have an audience that does that? Uh, and, and what do the audience well, do to well, help Duff, All this- the audience? The audience once upon a time would never consider doing that. But alas, right. this is the sort of degradation we've seen. I mean, we're launching insurrections right. against Congress. The booing, right. I think, is, you know. Well, but the point is, I don't know how you, you know, we've, we're trying to figure out how to stop insurrections against Congress. But it's really quite easy for the RNC to say no audience is here. And I think they should, because remember, there's an awful lot of people watching this. And if they see the audience boo nine times out of 10, they're going to say, well, the audience must be right. So that would be something that I think people do need to think about, because whatever you think of the individuals who are running for president, they ought to be given a fair shot to say what they want to say. Um, I I think that that's uh, uh, fair. And I would uh, urge everybody to be more respectful in our national discourse at all levels and our leaders uh, in particular to be more responsible about what comes out of their mouths. Uh, Jim, um, you know, Ukraine war, people are talking about no blank checks. Uh, Let's let the Russians keep it. We'll win the the Russians over against the Chinese. Uh, But but also sort of this strain of, uh, you know, somehow. Uh, there is, you know, misappropriation, and you know that that you know we've got to be very careful with our aid. I think we've got to be increasing our aid to Ukraine, not decreasing it. Uh, and I'm eager for this package to pass. And I, I think, you know, it's good news. The administration itself, uh, the United States Air Force, is going to start training F-16 pilots. Which, if we went back uh, even nine months ago, people were saying it's not necessary, and we're, you know, no, no need to be doing that uh, until the conflict's over. So I'm glad to see that. From your standpoint, what are elements of this? Uh, discussion from a national security perspective, whether about Europe, Asia, or anywhere else, uh, sort of jumped out at you. Well, it's 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 interesting. Uh, for the first time in a long time, we finally have a foreign policy issue uh, front and center in a presidential campaign. Here is the first uh, primary debate, and they were talking about a very important element of foreign and national security policy, and we can't seem to have a serious discussion about it. It's got to be weaponized. It's got to be politicized. Uh, that wasn't a serious discussion. It was a lot of stuff we've heard before being thrown out uh, by the Republicans. And uh, and the impact in Europe, uh, from what I've been able to tell so far, is people turned off their TVs. They couldn't believe uh, uh, a lot of what they were seeing. Uh, and so it's just, it, you know, just the theatrics and the carnival atmosphere of that uh, of that de- of that debate uh, hurt us overseas. They should be used to it by now, but I think each time they just can't believe it. Um, but I will tell you uh, that in terms of support for Ukraine, this really increases the angst level uh, in European capitals that uh, should uh, Republicans win, that it's going to be a hard lift, a heavy lift to get a Republican administration uh, to, to support because it's not really clear um, you know, the, 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 what the Republicans would do. You hear things like uh, you hear things like uh, no support, et cetera. I mean, it's not it's not a serious discussion. So you don't really have a good idea of what might happen. And so that makes the angst level go up because it's, it's the European nations and Zelensky particularly very unsure of what will be handed them, uh, if anything, uh, if a, if, a, if a Republican wins. So uh, but final point, I agree with Dove on the uh, on the audience bit. I just uh, I, I think we should stop that. It just it just uh, had a very unfair uh, impact on that debate, not just for Chris Christie, but on the whole event. Uh, so they really should should do away with that. But that's not Fox's way. They like to have a circus atmosphere. And that's what they got. And that didn't help anybody. I believe also final point is uh, um the, I think Nikki Haley, to me, came out uh, looking much better than I've ever seen her in terms of having a more mature look at these issues. 
Uh, David Brooks wrote a piece, I think, in the New York Times today saying some very similar things. And so uh, I, I, I throw my if I had to vote for a Republican, if I was faced with that choice, I think I would give it at this point. I would certainly give it to Nikki Haley just based on how she approached in a mature way the issues she was dealt with uh, during that debate. Uh, I would agree with you. And she was trying to strike. Uh, right. She wasn't she was trying to look beyond the primary and be a consensus national candidate whether on abortion, whether on security, be tough on international affairs and and be a, a reasonable voice. And I think that that's something I think also uh, a number of other, uh, right? I mean, whether it was Asa Hutchinson uh, was trying to do that. And I think certainly Chris Christie and I think Tim Scott, certainly more on the conservative side of things uh, were, were trying to do as well. Patrick, um, uh, you know, and and I, uh, I, I think uh, Jim sort of talked about this, sort of the concern uh, what would happen with Donald Trump? It's interesting that a couple of weeks ago, European and uh, and other friends of mine around the world were like, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, this this is uh, no problem, and it'll Biden will be elected." Whereas now there is a little bit of a concern, uh, given how the former president's popularity is surging. Every indictment makes him more popular, uh, to the point where people are saying, "Oh, you know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't, you know, he should face no legal repercussions because we're only making him stronger." Um, you, you know, your sense, and you just came back from from the region, based on sort of the impressions you're bringing back with you on how some of this played, including, you know, just give Taiwan to China, um, uh, you know, it'll it'll make things, you know, better. Well, the good news is nobody in Asia was watching this. Um, so, you know, this is a, a, a an early debate uh, on the Republican side. It's oriented toward those who are thinking about giving money or voting in a primary uh, for the Republican Party. Um, and and yet it was still an early indicator of what kind of Republican field might follow Trump. Um, uh, you know, I'm, if you're looking for reassurance, uh, if you want to be serious about foreign policy, you you can be, as Nikki Haley showed. And even Mike Pence talked down the need to deal with multiple crises. And Chris Christie talked about uh, the need to respect the Constitution. Now, all of these things show a certain level of seriousness that I think is would be welcome in Asia if they were watching. Um, at the same time, uh, discussions on things like China and climate change are just beginning, you know, to be continued, much, much more depth needed. And on the Ukraine uh, issue, I think overall, uh, I think it's helpful that uh, the Republicans are, are not walking away from this, even while they're scoring political points uh, on Biden. And I think they also make good points on immigration. And that's clearly one of the, the Biden uh, administration's vulnerabilities, I think, that they've failed to address uh, throughout the administration, and as a result, it's going to it's going to be one of the foreign policy issues I think on the agenda uh, that will be in play this next year. So overall, uh, I agree with everything that was said before. Uh, you know, uh, and, and shut off the audience because they are disrupting the American people's ability to listen to the candidates and make their make up their own mind. Um, secondly. Um, to, to see Nikki Haley stand up and be serious is a welcome sign that there is, you know, is a serious wing of the Republican Party here uh, on foreign policy. But thirdly, at the end of the day, right now, um, you still have to be very skeptical as to whether in the Republican Party, um, serious foreign policy outweighs a mugshot. And right now, I'm I'm not confident of that. Uh, well, I mean, the unfortunate thing is that the candidates who have the seriousness and approaching this as what we would consider to be a normal leader um, are finding themselves uh, at the very bottom of the polls. Uh, right. I mean, that's uh, the unfortunate thing. And and uh, it would be interesting whether in a Trump administration, any of these, I mean, it would be clear that none of them, with the exception of maybe Ramaswamy, uh, would would be uh, somebody who would be getting a job uh, even in a subsequent uh, Trump administration, uh, where there is a lot of activity, obviously, an effort by some uh, conservative Washington think tanks, uh, I think Heritage being one of them, where they're sort of trying to build what uh, the Trump two administration would look like and how to curb uh, the, the civil uh, the civil service and, and the like. Uh, Michael, I want to get uh, your take because, uh, you know, we've got so much, you know, with Prigozhin's assassination, Patrick's trip, uh, and just an enormous amount to discuss. But I just want to get your sense as as the political watcher, uh, what this meant. Sure. Look, I think uh, Dove and Jim and Patrick raised some really uh, excellent points, right? I mean, uh, you know, Dove referring to Ramaswamy as, as a Trump mini-me, I think is, is, is spot on. Uh, and and I think he's right. I think a lot of these people are auditioning for vice president because I think this debate is really about a race for, for second place. 
Um, you know, you know, Patrick says, you know, serious foreign policy, you know, does it outweigh a mugshot? And I, I don't think it does. Uh, you know, I, earlier this week, a very alarming you know, poll came out of Trump supporters you know, saying, like, if somebody tells you something, you know, do you feel what they tell you is true? Right. And we know that Trump lies multiple times a day, you know, including, you know, obviously about you know, Mexico paying for the wall, the election interference, you know, whatever it might be. And the, those people polled 71 percent say that if what if Trump tells them something, they feel what he's telling them is true. That compares to 63 percent for friends and family, 56 percent for conservative media uh, figures and 42 percent for religious figures. This just reinforces the belief that a bunch of the Republican Party has just become, you know, a, a cult of personality. And I think it really diminishes, you know, this this debate, um, you know, and at the same time, you know, with Jim referring to this, you know, many times, you know, as, as a carnival, I, I agree. I, I had trouble watching it. I had to keep walking out of the room because um, I just didn't think that this was being taken seriously. I, and I look at a guy like Ramaswamy, it's just not serious. I mean, when he comes out and says that climate change is a hoax, uh, it's just not serious. You know, I'm out here in California. Uh, in one country, uh, you know, I, and I come out here every year for 20 years, uh, you can see climate change happening here. And, and, and the people that are in the agriculture industry, you know, are experiencing it. Look at a national street. Talk to the shipyards and the shipbuilders. They'll tell you that climate change right. is, is serious. Right. I mean, it's just it's just nonsensical. It's not a serious discussion about the issues. And look, I agree with you. Nikki Haley, I think she did very well. I, I, I think. Again, as a Washington insider, there are things that she said that I, I, I had issues with. I mean, the fact that she attacked how many Republican requests to work for earmarks this year, I think something like $7 billion. Okay, well, that money's going to be spent anyway. It's a disingenuous attack. And when the budget deficit is $1.7 trillion, I don't think we should be arguing about you know $7 billion. Um, so uh, I, I think, and, and I agree totally with Dove uh, about the audience, right? Because the folks that resonated with me most during that debate were the ones that were getting booed uh, the most during that debate. Uh, so, and, and I still am, am stunned at Ramaswamy's rise. I'm like, I still can't figure out who this guy is. To me, he's the Andrew Yang, you know, of the Republican Party. Uh, just because he wears the uniform of a blue suit and a white shirt and a red tie, I don't understand why this guy is a serious contender uh, for, 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 for the presidency. Oh, well, I mean, if you've created uh, an ecosystem with its own rules, then yes, you get that. Uh, as opposed to you, you, and and by the way, right? I mean, at least Yang, you know, was trying to be thoughtful and you know policy oriented. And how do we change things? You know, even even if he was sort of like, hey, I'm the outside guy. I've never done it. You can be an outside guy and never done it, as long as what you're bringing is actually a degree of seriousness and not just sort of throwing spaghetti on a wall, uh, right? And there was a lot of unfortunately spaghetti on a wall, uh, which yes. I, I think, I th which I think Chris Christie in his inimitable fashion. Um, I think uh, uh, took on full disclosure, born and raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So uh, the the Chris Christie approach is not just a New York approach. It's a New York, New Jersey approach, uh, even if uh, New Yorkers always like to have some disdain for uh, the Garden State family there. Love New Jersey. See, I'm a New Yorker who can say that. Uh, <laughs> and the attitude is very familiar to me. All right, uh, Jim, um, uh, we have been discussing on this program Right, that Vladimir Putin isn't, you know, weakened. You know, there was this sense that Prigozhin's mutiny, and you know, oh, you know, the next thing we know, Putin is going to be on his way out, uh, and pretty much everybody was like, look, you know, Prigozhin is a dead man. Uh, he was a dead man walking. It was only a matter of time before Putin uh, did what he did. Two months to the day from the mutiny, uh, while uh, Putin was, uh, you know, having this, uh, you know, power moment. Uh, you know, uh, celebrating uh, at the Battle of Kursk, uh, the Russian victory, and Prigozhin, uh, you know, on a plane, on his own plane with with his top lieutenants, uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, 10 people lost their lives. Um, crash. Does this change, you know, and I thought uh, Andre Yermak, uh, obviously uh, the head of uh, Zelensky's uh, office, uh, you know, sent a telegram post out with just the clip of ACDC's Highway to Hell. Uh, so, I mean, your heart necessarily shouldn't bleed for somebody and a group of people this brutal who've got that much blood on their hands. Does this change anything, basically? Um, Surovikin was demoted. A whole bunch of generals have been fired. It just seems to me that Putin is going back to kind of Soviet. I, I, I will brook no opposition. I killed one of the oligarchs. 
this is a message to the other oligarchs, a message that he sent whether he was, uh, you know, sending the Luke Oil CEO to jail or anything else, right? That I am, uh, uh, you know, asserting myself. And what changes in the prosecution of the war effectively? I, I, I don't think anything changes, does it? Well, I don't mean? think, I don't think things change uh, in a way that you can see. I don't think it changes something on the battlefield necessarily, but I think it does change a lot of things in people's minds. Maybe other members of the power uh, centers uh, in Russia that might be a little more discreet now or a little more cautious now about doing something that might be coup related. There were coup plotters there. Maybe they're, you know, there's so there there is an impact in the minds of people who might be a threat or a challenge to Putin, whether that dissuades them or not. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, it certainly is a message uh, that's resonating in the minds of Russians that, hey, I'm, I'm Putin and I'm tough and I'll handle people like this and I'll, and, and et cetera. But I think another set of minds uh, that have been uh, changed here or shaped here, impacted here, are those in the West whose sensibilities uh, are no longer uh, that you can kill people and murder people uh, in such a horrible way uh in this day and age you know certainly during the cold war days people were pushed out of windows in the past bombs assassinations you know history is littered with that kind of thing in this day and age of as we as where we are it's a reminder of what we're dealing with in terms of not just putin but in terms of the russians uh that they will do something as heinous as this against the guy who i i, I don't have any tears about him either uh but still uh that it was something that brought down a plane that had some innocence on it too the staff on the plane the the um steward the stewards uh stewardesses if you will flight attendants and the pilots i mean you know this was a this was a pretty jarring way to off your your guy uh and so i think in the west in berlin uh in other capitals where there might be still those that pine for making a deal with putin or something along those lines this is a reminder of who we're dealing with uh and so if there's changes at all i think maybe we might see some changes in some of those minds in the west uh that are looking on putin as someone that eventually we can cut a deal with um i i do think uh, it's it's interesting and again right i mean everybody in in the senior classes i think it is jarring for the senior classes to see this uh in in russia but i have to say a lot of people have been falling out of windows getting shot in parks shooting themselves in the head with sniper rifles two miles away you know what is a mile and a half away one guy got hit in the head twice in his suicide that's nice um that just uh (laughs) real real quick because i want to uh i want to go uh, in a in a moment to uh, the leak that we discussed that Dove raised, and I want to get your sense on it. But first, a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes an incredibly thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gerkler. Washington has time and again. Uh, drop these uh, leaks. I think uh, General Milley, I'm not attributing this to him, but General Milley has expressed some of these themes, uh, you know, frustration, uh, uh, certainly what the focus of the New York Times story was the frustration by American leaders uh, and the message to the Ukrainians, hey, you're not using your forces uh, correctly. You're spreading them too thin. You're not uh, you know, Europe, a, a, a counteroffensive is stalling, uh, which is also giving um, uh, Zelensky some problems at home because Ukrainians are very tired. Uh, and so the faster you make progress, the better. And now you're stretching it out by a year uh, when the you know, when it's cold and you're not doing as much finding the Russians are going to use that to stockpile and prepare, I think, just like the Ukrainians are. But the reality is the Russians have planted so many mines everywhere that progress is slow. And I think Zelensky and the Ukrainians are right. I, we have not yet gotten all the equipment that all of you promised us in time to really be able uh, to do this, even if they're making incremental gains. What is what is bad about this story, though? Uh, right. Good news. We're sending F- you're going to do train F-16s. What's the bad part of stories like this emerging? There is a silver lining in that the Ukrainians appear to be listening to the electricity. It is reminiscent a little bit to the beginning of the war where the Ukrainians didn't seem to believe the Russians were going to attack them. And we kept telling them the Russians are going to attack you. So we've done this a couple of times to communicate. Is this effective, ineffective, problematic, especially at a time when we're debating more aid 
for for Ukraine uh, and and the like. Is this problematic messaging? Well, it's problematic messaging here at home. You know, I, I, uh, you know, you can look at it, the problematic messaging and how it impacts Ukraine and the Ukraine people and the Ukraine military who look up to or, or certainly collegial with the U.S. military. You know, are they looking on what's coming out of Washington is really what Washington thinks or is this, you know, they probably don't know what to think or who to believe. So but but frankly, there's the muddying of political waters here in Washington where these leagues come out. Uh, and um, and it's and it's difficult to read the tea leaves. Even the, all of us who've been drinking tea and and reading tea leaves uh, right. for years, uh, it's hard for us to see who is leaking this and what's what. Why are they doing this? Because uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly the military folks who've had experience in this kind of thing know what happens when you're entering into these these mind areas. And this is just this is depth in depth. You know, this is the kind of thing you're going to see, and Millie has been saying that. But there are these views that have been attributed to the intel community, which I have a hard time believing. These intel, that's intel people, coming out and saying things like, uh, "Well, the troops are in the wrong areas." I know that's coming from some of the military too. The troops are spread too thin, et cetera, et cetera. I wish we would stop that, um, you know, and let Ukraine do what they need to do if they want to say that stuff. And I'm sure they're doing it behind closed doors. It should stay behind closed doors because it is screwing up the politics of this in Washington. Kiev and what Zelensky thinks and our allies think, that's a whole nother matter. I'm concerned and, and uh, hearing what Michael has had to say about how this impacts the Hill, we're just making it harder for us to deal with assistance to Ukraine in the future if we're going to be casting doubt. I just don't know where these leaks are coming from, and I don't know what they're what they think they're doing. Do they think that they can impact the thinking of Ukraine planners by leaking this stuff? In other words, behind closed doors is not working, so let's go to the public and let's leak this stuff. I just don't know. But I tell you, if I were the Biden administration, I would hunt this. I would hunt this down. I mean, I hate saying it that way, but I would really try to find out where this is coming from and stop it because it's making his job harder. Uh, and uh, and and you know. I, I and, and and what to say to the Ukrainians and to people in Kiev uh, is to say keep your keep 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 your knitting as they say, you know, focus right. on what you're trying to do and and don't try to figure out Washington because we can't figure out Washington. Just want to uh, commend to everybody uh, in the uh, audience and to uh, check out Dove's uh, tremendous piece in the Hill with Prigozhin's death. Uh, there's no sign Putin is losing uh, control, and he has a, a terrific godfather, just very briefly, a great godfather analogy. So I just need to, you to weigh in on that because it's an epic start to uh, the piece. Well, all I said was that uh, Rogozhin was Luca Barazzi. Uh, those of you who may not have uh, remembered or seen the first Godfather movie, Luca Barazzi was the hitman for Don Corleone, the uh, Godfather, and I simply compared uh, Prigozhin to Luca Brazzi to, uh, of course, the Godfather in the Kremlin, uh, Mr. Putin. Uh, right. By the way, I want to pick up on where Jim left off, because it's not just that these leaks uh, are confusing people in Congress, and I've mentioned that, and Mike spoke about that in some detail. It's also reinforcing what Putin is thinking anyway, because one of the things about what he just did and remember also, where did Surovikin get put when he was arrested? That was Lefortovo prison. Lefortovo prison was where Stalin used to put his people before he eliminated them. That's a message that all Russians know. So you've got Putin now, stronger than ever in my view, and seeing all, because he knows all about these leaks as well. What do you think he's going to conclude? He's going to conclude Stick it out. The Americans are starting to have second thoughts about all of this. You've got the crazy right wing. He knows about that, too, who don't want to fund Ukraine. And all we're doing is encouraging this dictator to stay on, to hold on, praying for Trump to come back or or mini me Trump, uh, Vera Swami. Um, but the bottom line is that the administration and Jim said this, and I want to underline this administration has not condemned the leaks anything like they should have. I remember when I was in different administrations, when there was a leak, oh boy, would they check it out. Uh, we once had a, there was once a leak out of the Pentagon and we all had to take lie detector tests. 
And that's no fun if you've ever taken one. But this administration has not done that. All they've said is it wasn't us in the White House. That's not good enough. We've got to stop the leaks, as Jim said, because otherwise we are encouraging Putin. Um, uh, Absolutely. Patrick. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree uh, more. Patrick, you've been very patient, and I want to devote now the next 10 minutes of the program to uh, going through Asia Pacific and, and uh, your trip. But I want to get your sense on uh, Russia, uh, the you know w- both Putin's action and how that's likely to resonate with uh, the Chinese, uh, the uh, Prigozhin assassination, um, and the broader crackdown uh, that he's executing, but also how the leaks from Washington Right. I mean, the Chinese have uh, a, a way of sort of looking at this uh, and the messaging and our Asia Pacific allies are watching as well. Right. I mean, if we're doing if, if we're transmitting the message, we're standing up for uh, Ukraine to better deter China uh, from going into Taiwan. This is problematic messaging, isn't it? That, that complicates the, the very mission you're trying to execute, doesn't it? Well, there's certainly a downside to looking like we're on the sidelines uh, calling in audibles um, when, when, you know, what is the role we're playing in this war? Um, You know, and are we being helpful? Are we uh, clear about our uh, goals? Um, Are we coordinated in terms of how we uh, proceed with helping Ukraine fight this war? I think all of those are in question when you have this kind of leaking going on. And yes, this obviously raises doubts about America's reliability enroll in a Taiwan contingency or in other regional contingencies in the Asia Pacific. So it doesn't it doesn't help. But, um, you know, we're in the middle innings of uh, of this protracted conflict. I agree with Dov that uh, Putin wants to wear everybody down and outlast everybody. But um, hopefully uh, he's he pays a heavy and heavier price all the way along the line and, and realizes at the end that it was it was indeed futile. Um, what's interesting on the China Russia front on the Ukraine war is even if there's economic support and military support going from China to Russia, as I think there is, um, Xi Jinping has pulled back. Um, I think it was visible even without Putin being present in Johannesburg at the BRICS summit um, in the statement that Xi Jinping made, where he said, look, the overriding goal in Ukraine crisis has to be peace and de-escalation. Um, and while they have the n- normal bromide of, you know, don't add any fuel to the fire by anyone, um, including F-16s and so on, it, you know, he doesn't mention those specifically, but it is a warning to the West. But but it's also a warning to Putin. Um, Xi Jinping is just, his patience is worn out uh, on this conflict, and uh, it is dragging everything down. So he he is not happy with, with this conflict, I believe. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to... Um, uh, the uh, your trip, um, extraordinary trip. I commend uh, folks to check out your piece uh, in the Diplomat, uh, which was uh, very, very, very strong. Um, you uh, make the case that uh, actually Bonbon Marcos, uh, you know, everybody has a tendency of focusing uh, on um, uh, uh, you know the the changes in Japan and Korea and how everybody's getting closer uh, together and how Australia is stepping up in office. But actually, one of the most consequential transformations has been Bong Bong Marcos in office uh, and the shifts that he is making uh, as really a, a centerpiece uh, in standing up uh, to uh, China and better supporting uh, Taiwan. What were some of the key takeaways from? Uh, your trip to the region, uh, and you were in Manila, and how profound some of these changes are by uh, the Marcos administration. Well, 14 months into his administration, he has uh, been, you know, ushered in a renaissance in U.S.-Philippine alliance. Um, That was not expected um, from day one, and yet because he is so driven in restoring the Marcos name, his father's reputation, um, he also is interested in real leverage on standing up to China and understands that middle powers like the Philippines can, with enough support, not just from the United States, but from Australia, Japan and others, can actually stare down uh, China up to uh, some extent. That still makes a lot of neighbors in Southeast Asia nervous. They have the ASEAN way of consensus building, and they're watching this very closely um, only Vietnam heretofore has been uh, a claimant state in the South China Sea that has really occasionally stood up to China. Um, and now the Philippines uh, under Marcos is doing this. So you've seen this new uh, you know, four sites of the en- Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement 
uh, along the South China Sea, um, standing up with the United States help. Um, you, you see the fact that um, the Philippines has changed their strategic orientation. And this is one of the important points in the diplomatic article. We saw this in Japan in 2010, um, a couple of months after the uh, tension over the fishing trawler that rammed two Japan Coast Guard uh, ships near the Senkaku Islands. And then suddenly you saw in, in, in December 2010, a new defense program outline saying it's now the Southwest Islands that have to be the center of gravity for Japan's defense. And we have to reorient from the Cold War orientation of Hokkaido down to the Southwest Island chain. Now you see the Philippines in their new defense program um, sort of policy outline just uh, issued, not public not public yet, just the executive order, two pages that were fairly anodyne, but I'm told reliably from senior officials in, in Manila, uh, and I did meet with the foreign secretary and others, um, you know, that this new strategy will, will be public uh, by the end of the year. And it is oriented now toward uh, the West Philippine Sea, meaning the South China Sea's uh, portions near the Philippines. Um, and it also includes Taiwan stability. So that's a major reorientation for the Philippines. And they're and they're serious about it. They're not necessarily counting on the United States, as I point out in this article. It depends on the future of American presidents. But they are uh, clearly going to be looking after their interests uh, with a little more uh, muscle. And, and so this week, what we saw today, in fact, Friday, this literally today in the Philippines, you had Australia and the Philippines undertake their very first large sea air land exercise uh, 240 kilometers uh, east of Scarborough Shoal, which the Chinese commandeered back in 2012 uh, when the U.S. didn't stand up for the Philippines on this issue. Um, so this is a real interesting uh, point. And yet um, it happens on the same week that the Philippines hosted the 40th meeting of the joint working group between the Southeast Asian ASEAN states and um, China to look for a code of conduct on the South China Sea. That's not going anywhere because China will not accept constraints that are binding on it. But at the same time, uh, it's interesting that Philippines was using muscular diplomacy, uh, signaling to China, if they're not serious about a code of conduct, don't worry, Philippines will stand up and protect Scarborough Shoal, Second Thomas Shoal, and their holdings in the South China Sea. Um, there was a great uh, Washington Post article, right? I mean, we've been talking about the inroads that the Chinese are making everywhere around the world. Uh, we were talking about in the Solomon Islands, uh, were still some problematic agreements, but Fiji was a sort of a blueprint. Uh, the Post article talks about uh, how uh, the Fijiization uh, across the region, whether it was through Belt and Road initiatives and investment, police training, uh, and the like. Unfortunately, Fiji is a, a you know gorgeous country, but uh, one that has been racked by uh, coups uh, and uh, certainly some uh, accusations of uh, uh, authoritarian uh, behavior, certainly by the preceding administration uh, and and the newly the new administration actually had uh, seized power by coup um, some uh, decades ago. Anyway. How does the reversal of Fiji, right? Because it seems like in very many places, China's gains are remarkably fleeting and the U.S. is really pushing in an open door if it took the time and the effort and the bandwidth. And that's the same message you get actually from African leaders tell you the same thing. We're getting close to them because they're here and they're doing stuff. If you were here and you were doing stuff, we would, we would get closer to you. You know, even if if uh, senior leaders make clear, look, we don't want to get pulled into this great power competition and take sides. We can be for you and do work with them as well. What's the changing dynamic of this, and how in turn is China responding to this? Because China is being dealt one setback after another at a time when its economy is in deep, deep trouble and, and getting worse on a steady basis. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Um, first of all, just the Chinese economy. There've been, there's been so much written lately that everything is going downhill in China that you, you want to go in the other direction at the moment and just say, wait a second, we're conflating so much so quickly on this. Let's be a little bit more cautious. Take Nick Lordy's argument that, look, China may not have another boom in their sort of future, but uh, they're still a huge economy, and they still have a lot of uh, a lot of strength in it as well, um, despite all the problems that we we read about in the stagnation that is real, uh, the slowdown is real, the demography is real, and 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 Xi Jinping does not seem to be the man to turn around the reforms, the structural problems that 
we've been talking about for a long time are coming to roost in China. Uh, and this this seems to be real. And yet, uh, again, not slowing down the defense spending, not slowing down what we just saw in Johannesburg is this sort of let's rebuild the world order uh, in a more Sinocentric way through these major initiatives. The Global Development Initiative is kind of the extension of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is reaching out to South-South relations, including in in uh, the South Pacific, including in Southeast Asia, but also in Africa and Latin America. It's global. Uh, and in fact, Xi Jinping just announced he was going to be putting $10 billion into this global development initiative. Now, the fact that he didn't do that at Johannesburg is interesting. He's going to do it uh, is, is the only announcement so far. He also talked about sharing satellite data in Africa, which is interesting because that sort of resonates with the Maritime Domain Initiative uh, that the Quad countries have been undertaking across the Indo-Pacific. Anyway, I digress, but there's so many layers to this that, that makes this interesting. You mentioned the article in the Post about Fiji going uh, badly for uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, the farther you get away from China, uh, it gets more difficult to project their power and influence, there's no doubt, and, and yet a little money sometimes goes a long way, as we see in places like Africa. Um, but uh, what's happening with these dynamics is that if militarily, places like Guam, which is American territory, and therefore we don't have to ask an ally to use our air forces there, if that gets involved in a fight over Taiwan, um, we have to both better defend than we've you know, been able to defend so far the assets there with air and missile defenses, and that's a work in progress, very early work. Um, we're going to have to disperse from there, and we're going to disperse right. now clearly down to Australia. So countries in the Pacific Islands become very important. Are they going to be able to help defend and break uh, a, a Chinese onslaught You know, that tries to make sure that we cannot intervene uh, in defense of Taiwan if China wants to take China, Taiwan by force or takes over Okinawa or, or parts of the South China Sea? Um, all of this will be part of a military confrontation that China is gradually trying to beef up just as they have since the 1970s, they've, had, they've clearly had a long-term ambition to control the South China Sea. And they first started in the, the 1970s, at the end of the Vietnam War, in the Paracels, and then in the Spratly Islands with Vietnam in the 80s, and then in Mischief Reef in, in the southern South China Sea of the Spratlys um, with the Philippines. And then what we've seen in the last decade with the island building uh, and pushing around the Philippines with water cannons just this past couple of weeks, all of that is a is a gradualist approach. The the, the great wall of sand, as uh, you know, Harry Harris called it. Um, you know, making its way. They've been trying to do this now in the Pacific Islands more recently, but they're running into some early challenges. Uh, and clearly, you're saying, Vagwan, I agree with you. With determination, with allies and partners, uh, we can successfully offer these countries a better alternative. But that we can't do everywhere, and that's what China's banking on in something like. The BRICS summit, this 15th summit of these leaders, they've just added six members, including working now into Iran and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, Dove could talk about the earlier deal this year uh, to broker that peace. Now they're being incentivized by saying, look, we're letting you into this special club. Uh, even if you don't share a lot of other interests, you're going to get more benefits from us, uh, including trying to move away from the dollar and trying to be a counterweight to the G7 countries if they go against your interests. Obviously, Russia is very happy with this because they were booted out of the SWIFT system. This looks right. like maybe an alternative. Uh, we have uh, just a tiny amount of uh, time left, and and obviously uh, Saudi Arabia and the uh, Emirates are delivering all sorts of messages to Washington by actually opening up trade, uh, right? I mean, allowing uh, both serving as havens for Russian money, but also allowing uh, a lot of Chinese investment to come in deliberately to message to Washington we're players and we can play in any direction we want to go. We have one minute left. Uh, the show is a little bit longer, but it's our last one for two weeks. Uh, Dove, uh, very quickly on whether uh, the Gulf countries actually become BRICS members as well and what that means. And then very quickly, uh, astonishingly, uh, and although unsurprisingly, uh, Israeli settlers are actually turning on the administra Israeli administration that has given them greater leash than any Israeli administration probably ever has. Go ahead. Well, very quickly, uh, I'm not sure uh, the Saudis or the Emiratis are going to join the BRICS very soon, uh, simply because uh, the Emiratis have been welcoming uh, Russian money in for years and years and years. Uh, yes, they'll welcome Chinese trade, but China's not going to give them the security that we can give them. 
um, they'll just follow their own interests. They'll play with whoever they feel they need to play with, uh, but they're not about to join the BRICS right now. At least that's how I see it. On the Israeli thing, it's unbelievable. The the This is the most right-wing government in the history of the country. And now the settlers are protesting. They actually had a protest outside Netanyahu's office, and some of their leaders are calling Netanyahu and the defense minister, Gallant, uh, to be leftists. Um, does this indicate a, a real split in the government? Um, it, there's other problems that they're facing. The ultra-Orthodox are still demanding that uh, their students be treated as if they were in the military, which has outraged anybody who's not ultra-Orthodox in this uh, coalition government. Uh, so there may be splits. Uh, and whether Netanyahu can pull rabbits out of multiple hats, as he has in the past or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see maybe till your next uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, thanks very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Always great uh, having you on. Hope everybody has uh, a terrific uh, break. And thank you uh, to the audience uh, for uh, joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible. Uh, uh, hope everybody has a great weekend. And check out the Business Roundtable uh, that'll be out on Sunday, as always. Everybody have a great weekend. And thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>